Welcome, listener, to the Failure to Launch podcast, a podcast where we take you through all the mistakes, failures, and explosions that made modern space exploration possible. We are your hosts, Quinn. Chris. Another Chris. And, and today's you. episode is part two of The First and Worst Satellite, where we'll continue talking about a little thing you might have heard of called Sputnik. Oh, so how is everybody doing? Oh, spectacular. How are you doing? Oh, pretty good. I say as though we haven't done like 30 minutes before this making loads and loads of completely scuffed manipulations of Korolev's face that will be going up on Twitter and YouTube and any place where our viewers or listeners will be seeing this. Um, I'm here feeling like I should have done some homework there. You guys do not do homework. That is that is the point. I need, your, ride, I need baby. your reactions to be genuine. That drives the algorithm. If you guys knew, then it would be fake. And that's fake is what I'm doing right now. Faking emotions and stuff like that. I need genuine. So last time we went over the, the kind of geopolitical, military and, and economic reasons that set Sergei Korolev on the path to launching Sputnik. I'll just kind of like, we'll do a bit of a rundown here just to uh, get you and everybody else back up to speed. So the year is 1956 and it is a bad time to be the Soviets. Stalin's dead. U.S. is flying fleets of bombers clean over their territory and their economy can't supply the standard of living that the Soviet people want. Add to that Khrushchev starting a civil war with a dumb speech. And it's fair to say the Soviets need a win, a win which Korolev provides. Uh, he he wows Khrushchev and the other members of the Presidium and gets them to bet big on his new superweapon, the world's first intercontinental ballistic missile, the R-7. Now, being a sneak and a manipulator, Korolev also gets the green light for his personal passion project, launching the world's first artificial satellite. So... How how are we all feeling after all that? We talked uh, we talked a lot about this last time, but it's it's Korolev conning Khrushchev. It's him uh, like completely overblowing his project. It's beautiful, is what it is. It sounds to me this, like we need to go into the gulag. It sounds like we need to go deeper. We, We're gonna fake it till we make it. Yeah, and, and and we're actually we're, that's going to come up in just a second because everything everything that I explained before that is why Sputnik happened, and it gets us right up to the moment where Korolev gets the green light for his project, and that happens in early 1956. He promised he'd have the R7 in testing by the end of the year. He he gets he gets funding, he gets personnel, he gets a, a new facility, and his own like 
his own organization, OKB1. And to explain why absolutely none of that matters and why Korolev is screwed, I'm going to quote from the very good book, Red Moon Rising. Quote, Korolev had fallen into the classic salesman's trap. During his pitch to the Presidium, he had made wildly unrealistic promises in order to close the deal for the satellite. By showing the Presidium a full-scale mock-up of the R-7, he had left Khrushchev and Molotov with the distinct impression that a prototype ICBM was almost complete. But the rocket they had seen was an illusion, little more than a 10-story modeler's toy. The real prototype was nowhere near ready. The satellite was also hopelessly behind schedule, and the modifications for the rocket to carry it were not nearly so minor as Korolev had breezily suggested. In short, and pay attention for this because this is like the best summation of the entire last episode. In short, Korolev had conned Khrushchev, a sucker for engineering marvels who could easily be tricked by a charismatic scientist promising miracles. He's about to speedrun his way to a fucking Makarov, pardon my language. Oh, he's he's faced <laughs> as we're as we're gonna get to, he's faced worse already. He's he's not afraid of that, but maybe he should be. Now he's not he's not too worried about this, to be honest. He's got he's got a good team and he's got infinite funding. He and his people were confident that the R7 would work. The problem is just the incredibly tight timeline. They gave he's he gave himself less than a year to get this done. And they started with basically nothing. He also might have done kind of too good a job selling Khrushchev on the R7. As we talked about last episode, Khrushchev needed to free up funds for new agricultural and housing projects. Uh, and believing that missiles would soon be Russia's main line of defense, he began aggressively slashing military spending. At the time, uh, the CIA estimated that the Red Army's total funding was cut by over a third. Let's just let that sink in. This is the Red Army. This is the biggest military to exist at that time. And on Khrushchev's whim about a new, amazing superweapon, he slashes their funding, personnel, and supplies by a third. That's the definition uh, of all of your eggs in one basket. I was about to say, yes. Uh, Khrushchev is definitely given off the impression of uh, all your eggs in one basket type of guy. Not just that, it... It makes sense freeing up that much budgeting, but at the same time, if it falls through, which uh, sounds like it might. Oh, yeah. Khrushchev also stopped building aircraft carriers and heavy cruisers. Uh, the Soviet military, like, you know, we, we all laugh at the Kuznetsov and stuff like that. At the time, they were building a navy to match the U.S. And Khrushchev, he, he cancels some of them just as they're finishing being built. He scraps them. And the Soviet military, understandably, were not too pleased with this. Even under Khrushchev's protection, the R-7 was technically part of the military, so Korolev was given military bosses, and they made it very clear to him and his people. If the R-7 did not work, Russia would be left defenseless, and he would be to blame. Initial tests and problems. And the R-7 was not working. During the meeting with the Presidium, Korolev had repeatedly downplayed the difficulties of making the rocket operational. He had even interrupted Valentin Glushko, the main engine designer, who tried to explain the problems to Khrushchev, and Korolev just, you know, waves him off and tells him not to bother their guests with petty details. And this is going to be a bit of an aside, but I do think it's important to mention, like, Valentin Glushko is going to come up more in this story, and we will definitely dedicate 
some time in later episodes to talking about how he and Korolev worked together. But for, for the listeners, these guys hate each other. They have a long history of working together and against each other. They are, uh, in, they are massive rivals. And, and part of why, part of why Korolev, uh, brushes him off then might have been to kind of protect his project. A good chunk of it might have just been Korolev gloating because he is now in charge. And the problems facing the R7 were not petty little details. A new advanced guidance system had to be developed because the R7's massive range would turn any little error into missing the target by hundreds of kilometers. The standard support blocks that they used to launch rockets couldn't hold the mass of R7, so they'd have to build a custom launch rig for the rocket. And in order to meet the R7's massive thrust requirements of 450 tons, Lushko had designed what was then the world's most powerful rocket engine, the RD-107. These engines could put out more than enough thrust, but they were coming up short in two critical areas, control and efficiency. Because the R7 would fly further than any other rocket, its engines would have to burn longer, and because of that, the small graphite steering fins that they used to control the flow those would be those would burn up long before they were ablative. Yes. Oh no. Yeah. But Korolev has a solution. Korolev uh, suggests bolting little steering thrusters on the side of the main engines, and these little thrusters would siphon off a little bit of the the um, you know the engine power, and they would be able to turn the engine like that. Glushko but- does not like this idea. Not because not because of any merits. He just doesn't like anyone messing with his engines, and he he complete he threatens to leave the project if that idea goes forward. Oh, um, perfect! That is not the only thing they argue about. Uh, they argue about what fuel to use. Korolev he wants to use uh, kerosene and liquid oxygen, which is kind of the the vanilla uh, rocket fuel combination, the known quantity, if you will. Yeah. Uh, Glushko wants to use nitric acid and hydrazine, which was higher performance, but far more dangerous. We're, I, again, this is like, we'll, we will eventually get around to talking about rocket fuels. Hydrazine is the king of horrible rocket wait, fuels. Wait, are we talking about red fuming nitric acid? That's, uh, that's the nitric acid side. Um, yeah, and I know hydrazine, but red... The, the fuming nitric acid it's, is so it's, much and it's truly the com- it's the combination well. that makes it far far worse um oh yeah for 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 any listeners look up the uh the r16 disaster or the nadellan disaster uh there's a very good podcast called well there's your problem and they've done a great episode on uh exactly why building a missile with nitric acid and hydrazine is a horrible idea and got a lot of people killed oh no. the uh so this combination actually had a specific name in russian circles devil's venom for that very purpose it's it's amazing i i love it it's like it's really batshit fuel for a truly batshit process oh yeah or project or or just the fact that like the fact that safety was you would you would expect them to be go crazy over this stuff because you know who cares about safety, but it's the fact that they looked at that and went, even when yeah. they're racing to beat the Americans, even when it's the Soviet Union, they look at that and go, ah, okay, let's let's avoid that. So thankfully, Jesus bring bringing it back to the R seven. Thankfully, Korolev wins, 
And but because of that, because uh, kerosene and liquid oxygen didn't perform as well, he had to accept that the missile would uh, it would not be able to carry as big of a payload anymore. Is it had to compensate with extra fuel, right? Uh, no, no. He just in, in this case they just lower the design expectations of the missile. Okay. Yeah, it's the R seven is over designed. Because Korolev's real goal is launching a satellite with all this, he designs it to like more than enough as an ICBM. If he lowers the performance a little bit, it'll hurt his pet project, but it will still be able to put a nuclear warhead anywhere on Earth. While you and Chris are going on a back and forth about rocket fuel and chemistry and all that, the only things that I can think of is that Lushko and Korolev sound like an arguing married couple. And... When you were talking about how uh, Glushko would go and try to explain to his boss that things are not quite so right with the engine project while the military brass are there present, boring, you know, the only thing that I can think of when you mention that is steamed hands, except re re (laughs) focus through the lens of. Soviet era rocketry and these two goons. The rockets fucked. Everything's fucked. No, look at that. It's perfectly functional. It's, it's right fine. there. My God, what's going on in there? Metal in in the kitchen. Yeah, and it, that's kind. Of, that's kind of prescient. <laughs> Believe it or not, that's kind of prescient because this also brings up the people problems Korolev is facing, which is mostly Glushko, uh, who was How the Soviet. Glushko is a petulant shit. It, okay, Sometimes. It, no, we're we're gonna get to this. Do not put this all on Glushko. These guys are longtime rivals. They hate each other, and they have both done terrible things to get where they are. Oh no, Glushko is just the he's he's the flavor of the moment. He's Don't the worry, we'll get to boy Korolev. But he so he was also the Soviet Union's leading expert on rocket engines, and yeah, Korolev's longtime rival. Uh, we'll definitely talk more about the duo on some later episode, but to sum it up, the two were complete opposites and had always hated each other. They even went out of their way to, you know, sabotage each other's projects. Also, Just Korolev fuck slept, each other over. Yeah, also Korolev slept with Glushko's sister. <laughs> what yeah. is this fucking high school? Yeah, well, no, this this isn't this isn't just like high school drama stuff. This isn't, you know, office politics. This is great purge era Stalinist Russia and their rivalry from this gets so bad that they get each other sent to the gulag. Like they the same they, gulag nonetheless. They they each acute. Yeah, it's it's I think this is more That's the, that think, is the best part of it, in my opinion. Just the fact that I really hope some just Soviet judge recognized that and said, oh, I'll put him in the same one. Just just do it. They do wind up in the same one. It but, is beautiful. But it, to, me, to me, it's still the fact that like they both independently accuse each other and they go to the same judge. They both accuse each other of doing treason. And the, instead of picking one of them to be trustworthy, the judge just says they're both guilty. And just you sends them both away. Enough. You both go to the naughty box. They, oh, yeah. And... He- the judge wanted them to stop being his problem. So not only is their punishment going to be that they're going to be locked in a cell in Siberia somewhere for God knows how long, they're yeah. also going to be doing it together. Yeah. <laughs> everything and, is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Oh, it, it, I don't, I don't, um, I didn't put in this quote from the book, but it does make a point that whenever he gets, uh, whenever Korolev gets handed his sentence, the last thing the judge says is next, which just kind of like that's that's the great purge. Just brushes him off. 
Yeah, it's just, you know, like, buddy, I've got like five more uh, treason, treason cases to go through today. Let's do, let's get this moving. Oh, uh, beautiful. I love it. it. I I will point out they are kind of the as crazy as it sounds, they are kind of the lucky ones in this scenario because there were four people on their team. This is they get they get uh, sentenced in 1938. There were four. They people. had enough clout. Yeah, there were four people on their team back then. Uh, Glushko and Korolev are just the ones that survive. This entire team uh, goes down because they start accusing each other of treason for uh, various sleeping with sister reasons. But two of the other guys are shot. So, you know, Siberia might not be so yeah. bad. And once while <laughs> you're still alive. Yeah. And, and and during World War Two, at first they got sent to a uh, have you guys ever heard of a Shiraga? Yeah, that's where they sent the uh, people who are capable of actually helping the war effort when it came to an engineering sense. It's a science prison. Hell yeah. If it, whenever whenever World War Two started, um, Stalin basically realized that all of the best scientists and engineers were locked up in gulags, but not being willing to let them actually go. He just made new gulags. They were slightly better. I think it, I can't remember if it was Antonov or Tupolev, but I think like I think one both. Of, like a lot of a lot of uh, Soviet bomber and fighter designs specifically were made from prison. Yeah, and they get sent there, but later on they actually, you know, they get freed. Uh, specifically, whenever uh, Germany falls and they have to go and actually inspect. Like uh, what's called? Yeah, there's another one, uh, Patelyakov. I like to imagine the concept of. Stalin built these shiny new gulags just for these top scientists. And it's just like they have slightly larger cells and they're like they have like one of those giant hamster drip feeders. <laughs> the way I was imagining it Donnie's is that they're, they're all they're all sitting content. they're all sitting at their desks, but they just have like a chain around their leg leading to their drawing table. So, so yeah, during World War II, they'd been freed to work on missiles. Now the security of Russia depended on these two rivals working together, which, you know, even though Korolev now outranked Glushko, wasn't happening. Uh, the problems cropped up to the point that Korolev had to push back their planned launch date to March 1957. So he pushes it back about three months. And progress was being made, but it was slow. From Red Moon Rising, quote... The R-7's scheduled March 1957 test launch deadline came and went, and Sergei Korolev was still not ready. He was becoming increasingly irritable, more prone to terrorizing his staff with his infamous flare-ups, and he wielded both the stick and the carrot to motivate his engineers. Uh, breakthroughs were rewarded with on-the-spot bonuses, wads of rubles that Korolev kept in an office safe for just such a purpose. Most significant achievements earned holidays to Black Sea resorts or even the most sought-after commodity in the entire Soviet Union, the keys to a new apartment. Like oh, all large shit. factories and institutes, OKB-1 was responsible for housing its employees. For young and especially newlywed scientists living in dormitories without privacy, few incentives matched the prospect of skipping to the front of the long waiting list for a place of their own. So, like... Whenever, whenever the going gets tough and, you know, like they're getting close to their deadlines, he's literally just wandering around OKB1 with like wads of cash in all of his pockets, handing out keys to apartments to anyone who like does a good job that day. That's fucking nuts to have that on your, just the capacity to say, there you go. Yeah. Keep at it. Yeah. And to it, wield the sword in the same manner as 
that's just oh, he, that shit to well, think of. As as we'll see, Korolev uh, is also infamous for his uh, his screaming tirades and constantly threatening to send people to the gulag. And the crazy, fuck. Well, maybe not so crazy, but it actually starts to work. After much arguing, Glushko sort of just leaves the project. And instead of dealing with Korolev, he decides he's just going to deliver half-finished engines to OKB-1, where Korolev's engines will install the little steering thrusters and actually finish, you know, assembly. Uh, breakthroughs mm. had been made in programming a guidance system, and a large network of ground stations had been dotted all around Kazakhstan and Siberia to track the test flights. Finally, to solve the support problem, they built the Tulip, a massive vice, you know, roughly the size of the Eiffel Tower, that would be held closed by the rocket's own weights. When, you know, the rocket lifted up, the vice would open like the petals of a flower, hence the name. Ah. Yeah. Uh, and this, in, if um, it's, still, it's still around, uh, at, at Gagarin's start uh, in Baikonur. It's still there? Yes. Yeah. Uh, the original tulip is still there. I'm sure it's been, you know, uh, heavily repaired and parts replaced and whatnot, but it's this big green, like, it, it's, uh, we'll, we'll post a picture. It'll be on YouTube, um, as well, but it's a, it's a very cool, uh, piece of machinery. Now, not everything was completely sorted out though. Some engineers were worried about the nose cone and the heat shield that would protect the warhead on reentry. If the ablative layers failed, the warhead would be incinerated. And all you would have is just a radioactive lump with no capacity to go it would be useless boom. it would be useless as a you would just as a be contaminating missile. a tract of land it, that's you it. wouldn't you wouldn't even have that it would it would completely as as we will see like this becomes a very big problem very quickly for korolev but at the time he doesn't think it's a problem he thinks it can be sorted out later so he deemed the r7 ready to begin testing and moved his entire operation to a brand new facility in kazakhstan to your or, as it would eventually come to be known, the Baikonur Cosmodrome. Tiura Tam and the work killing Korolev. You guys, have you guys ever heard of Baikonur? Yes. Well, we did just talk about it. Okay, yeah, but like, I, like this is this. Um, it's still it's still around today. It is the um, it's. The Soviet Union's and then Russia's main spaceport. It's since kind of fallen into disrepair. Uh, there's a there's a very good series of images. I'll link to it on Twitter. It'll be in the description of the video of uh, basically an old hangar. You guys might have seen it. Uh, the Buran space plane where this huge hangar and they just have two space shuttles sitting in this hangar completely covered in dust, uh, <sighs> like just falling apart. That saddens me more it, than it is. It, they're incredible pictures. The guy who uh, who snuck in there, but yeah, it it will make you sad. And this this is where Baikonur starts. Uh, Tiora Genesis. Yes, and you know back then, uh, like I back then, like I said, it was called uh, a Tam, and Tiora Tam was built for two reasons. First reason was secrecy. Located out in the middle of nowhere in Kazakhstan and serviced only by a single railroad, its location was the best guarantee of safety the Soviets had. They considered that in any nuclear attack, the first places to be hit would be Soviet air bases and missile sites, so they did their best to hide their new superweapon. Even the name Tioratam was an attempt at misdirection, 
drawing attention to a nearby mining town with the same name. Uh, they would later change the name to Baikonur after a different mining town even further away. Any mail to the facility was sent to Moscow P.O. Box 300. And like this secrecy even extended to the construction of Tiuratam, where soldiers worked in very short rotations and were deliberately kept in the dark about where they were. So anyone, any work crews sent to this place, they just got in a train and a few hours later they were dumped in the desert. and No one would tell them where they were. Nothing like starting your day with a mysterious train ride into the <laughs> desert. Yeah. No, they, they, they lived, they said they did one big train ride and then they stayed there for a while and then they left because as, as we'll get to, Duratom is not, it's not nearby to anything and it is not a good place to be. Uh, so the second reason for choosing Tioratam was the R7's uh, guidance system. Working from a desert, engineers didn't have to worry about rocket stages or, you know, nuclear warheads falling on towns and cities. It, it had a straight shot uh, north to the target zone in Siberia, and a network of listening posts was set up along the path to track the R7 in-flight and relay guidance info. Now, all of these were good reasons to build a site in the middle of the desert, but they also... I interrupt. Uh, what was the tracking method? Sound? Uh, no. It, Did you say the, I, radar? Proper radar stations? Yes. Sorry. By, okay. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, by listening posts, it just meant like radar stations. I'm. Yeah. Uh, now, all of these were good reasons to build a site in the middle of the desert. They also made Tioratama living hell. In summer, workers cooked alive in 135 degree Fahrenheit or 55 degree Celsius weather, and in winter. The temperature dropped to minus 30 degree Fahrenheit or minus 35 degrees Celsius. The open desert meant that there was no shade or shelter from the brutal wind. Water had to be strictly rationed for work crews due to shipping difficulties. Work crews being constantly rotated meant that construction was slow and uncoordinated. The officer in charge of coordinating the construction suffered a mental breakdown and was shipped off to a Moscow mental hospital. All that was ready by the time Korolev and his team arrived was the massive launch pit for the R-7s, a single assembly hangar, and fuel tanks. There was no time for housing. Soldiers and scientists lived in repurposed train cars. And finally, the food was awful, and the most common form of entertainment was watching scorpions fight to the death in empty bottles. And they actually, it seems like they had a pretty good fight ring going. Like, they were betting on them. They had tournaments. Did they have selected stock of scorpions? Yeah, they. I mean, this is the this is the desert in Kazakhstan. These things were stinging people all over the place. Did uh, they eventually have a Korolev and a Glushko scorpion? I, I'm just curious. I I don't know, but I really do hope. I hope Considering that the I hope that the meanest. I hope that the the fattest and meanest scorpion they had. They they had to have named that Korolev. And then the wiliest one. Our boy Klishka. Yeah, make they it just, a little suit. Would that even be information that was like known to the the That's you know the the lowly man? Yeah, is is that the deep lore that really wouldn't have been known to the common man, or is it just that obvious of a rivalry that everyone knew? I'm I'm not actually sure. In everything I've read, it it doesn't seem like they had many shouting matches in public in front of like normal workers. In front of higher up people on the team, it was clear because in in um, like team meetings, in department heads and stuff like that, these guys are screaming at each other twenty four seven. And if you're higher than that, like if you're a general or someone in the government, then you know about their rivalry because anytime one of them has a project, 
the other one will come to you and try and like whisper in your ear and say like, Hey, you need to cancel his project. Like they, they constantly try and sabotage each other. Oh God. Yeah. So I'm going to quote again from red moon rising. Ill omens appeared almost from the start. During a dress rehearsal for the first launch, a fire alarm was inadvertently triggered, setting off sprinklers in the blockhouse control room that drenched everyone, including irate military representatives who had come to observe the birth of the Red Army's latest and most lethal weapon. Later, a technician dropped a bolt inside the R-7, and for several tense hours, the missile was searched for the lost object. Korolev Korolev exploded when Chertok informed him that one of the Moscow dignitaries had offered the clumsy technician a bonus of 250 rubles, about a week's pay, for owning up to the potentially catastrophic mishap. What the hell are you doing? The chief designer roared. You should punish him, not reward him. Rescind the bonus immediately and issue a reprimand. This sort of behavior from Korolev continued right up to the first test launch. A few hours before liftoff, Korolev exploded at a colonel who he thought was sending fake reports and threatened to abort the launch unless the man was immediately arrested. This proved to be paranoia on Korolev's part, and he was forced to make a public apology. So, like, he's... This, the stress is, like, destroying him. He's spending his days wandering around, handing out money or screaming at people, and any of the people who come to visit his project, he invariably... Uh, starts screaming that they're spies and tries to have the KGB arrest them. Oh, perfect. Yeah. I wouldn't expect anything less from this man. You're also not going to expect much less from his rocket, because the initial tests of the R-7 do not go well. Catastrophic? Uh, like, a bit of a mix. Initial tests of the R-7 did not go well. The first launched perfectly before exploding 98 seconds into the flight. One of the side boosters had shaken itself apart and destroyed the whole rocket. This was not unexpected. It has to be said that first tests of rockets very often fail, especially back then. Korolev and his team tinkered away at the rocket for another month. The second rocket sputtered out on the launch pad three times before exploding. After another month of revision, Korolev and his team were ready for a third test. This R7 launched well, but exploded after 30 seconds. Wait, he's back. He's going backwards. He's supposed to get better. He's losing progress, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's that every time, as soon as they sort out the vibration problem, they run into the next problem. That's, vibration is happening for some reason. Yeah. It's, it's iterative design, except every time you iterate, you lose... Um, A significant yeah. portion of the yearly budget of the Soviet Union. Yeah. I, I, again, there's a, there's a good quote that I don't have here, but after one of their tests... It's Korolev lamenting, and he's saying, like, uh, he says something like, comrades, we're traitors. We just burned away the financial equivalent of a town. Beautiful. Yeah. With with three consecutive failures, the morale among the R-7 team goes from bad to horrible. These people were working nonstop in the middle of the desert for months. Different divisions in the team started arguing over whose part had failed in what test. Korolev's rivals were working behind the scene to convince frustrated generals to cancel the R-7 completely. And all of this is happening in the middle of a baking hot desert in Kazakhstan where disease is running rampant. And everything's just being cranked up to 11. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of his lead engineers gets has to be airlifted to a Moscow hospital with radiation poisoning. Um, and Korolev what suffered as much fuck? as anyone. He, he, he works himself to exhaustion, he's routinely ill, and he ne- ends up needing to get daily doses of penicillin. It... <laughs> yeah, he's just, he's just having a great time. Uh, a lot of it oh, is... Oh, he's, 
he he had a lot of like really bad illnesses whenever he was in the gulag and he never completely recovered so he's he recovered he, enough to be functional not yes. recovered and then like that's that's fine whenever he's working at like a research institute near moscow but now he's out in the middle of the desert where everybody is sick and it's hitting him particularly hard uh it also and destroyed fact, jesus yeah it also destroyed his marriage uh <laughs> Oh, shocker. Yeah. Oh, that could never have happened. With his wife or with Glushko? <laughs> with, with, his, with his wife, like... Uh, Glushko has already pieced out of the project by now. Glushko, Glushko's contribution to the R7 is that every now and then a train shows up with, like, rocket engine have- parts that aren't put together. And glu- like angry letters, and, and Glushko's contribution also at this time is trying to get generals to cancel the R seven. He is fully in the enemy category by now. Uh, no, this is this is uh, Korolev's family that gets destroyed because through all of this, Korolev has this like paranoid idea in his head that the U.S. is actually days away from launching their own rocket. Like he fully believes this um, because we're doing it, they're doing it. Yes. And and he thinks that they're ahead. Like it drives him to go faster, of course, but he like Got he, stuff on the gas, baby. Yeah. And, and what he does is he spends all of his nights uh, reading Western science magazines with OKB1's translator. Uh, I'm probably going to get this uh, probably going to pronounce this wrong. Nina Kotenkova. And somewhere along the line, the two fall in love because of all of these nights that they're spending together. And this results in a brutal divorce from his first wife, Ksenia, and his daughter, Natalia, disowns him. I think it's important to mention here a lot of historical accounts. They like to paint him kind of like a von Braun, uh, this you know driven figure who cared for nothing but his work and didn't let little things like emotions or ethics get in the way. He's a hyper dysfunctional von Braun. What do you mean? I, I want to present a different view to that, actually. Uh this divorce crushes him. Like it utterly destroys him for a pretty long period of time. Like it, he is a, he is a family man through a good chunk of his life and like very devoted um, until he's not and like he, he's spending his days sick and tired, screaming at workers in the middle of a desert in Kazakhstan. And he's spending his nights after this. He, he spends every night writing letters to his daughter, begging her to forgive him. He, he tries using Tiora Tam's one phone uh, to call her on her 18th birthday, and she hangs up on him. Oh, that is crushing. It, I mean, he, yeah. he, he kind of, he does deserve he, it, but... He got, a, he, got his, he got a guy sent to the gulag, and he got two other guys killed, but, you know, you can't help but you know, sympathize with him a little bit. There, there is some sadness there, but... Yeah, and the, and the reason, the he, the time, reason his daughter disowned him is fully his own, is fully his fault. He oh, destroyed, yeah, no, he shot he destroyed his there. marriage and is living with the consequences. Um, <laughs> it's just... He's, oh, there's no argument there. He's living... He is literally living in a hell of his own making. He picked Tioratam as the place to put the rocket launch. Like, all of this is his, his fault. His personal hell. But you can't, you can't help but kind of sympathize with the guy for being in it. So... Only, only to a small degree. Yeah. It'll it'll pass. You'll you'll be uh, impressed and mad at him soon. Um, In equal so, measures, I'm going to assume. Yeah. So after months of work and sickness in a desert and defending his project from his rivals, 
the fourth R7 flies perfectly. And, you know, after all of that, Korolev and his team finally have something to celebrate. A few weeks it was later, they follow, star. Yeah. A, a few weeks later, they follow it up with another perfect launch. But there's a slight problem in both. The heat shields fail and the fake warheads burn up on reentry. So the celebration doesn't last long because without a working heat shield, the R7 is useless as an ICBM. Which all it is doing is literally flinging a radioactive cannonball. That's it, it, it. Is, it is delivering no nothing. Just yeah, it's delivering nothing. But here, here's like a hundred square miles of slightly more radioactive land, as opposed to the glistening crater they hoped to create. And from the first episode, the R seven is a missile. It is a missile first. As far as the generals are concerned, it is only a missile. The pet project is like a distant second. So yeah. if it to all to all of the generals looking, they see this as like they still have a lot of work to go. This thing is not yet operational. Um, this is not what we were promised. Exactly. And the sensible thing to do at this point would be to focus on the heat shield and sort those problems out so the R7 can actually fulfill its main goal of being a missile. Uh, work on the what satellite it was promised would, to be. Yes. Work on the satellite would have to wait because the satellite can only be launched after the missile is operational. This is the deal he made with Khrushchev. Uh, on top of double. that, the satellite that they're making, Object D, is also far from being ready, so it can't be launched anyway. All of that would be the sensible thing to do, but you have to remember that Korolev is sick, his family hates him, and he is incredibly paranoid all the time. He's convinced that America is going to beat him to orbit any minute now. He oh, needs no. to launch a satellite as soon as possible. So he, he comes up with a little scheme. He's going to convince the military to let him launch a satellite as soon as possible as a way of proving to the world that it can launch a warhead, you know, doing a little switcheroo. Because they can kick it up into space. It can obviously come back down perfectly intact without because, issue. Because NATO doesn't know that the heat shield is fucked up and that it can't actually do that. All you know is what you can see. Exactly. So it's with this in mind that Korolev calls together, like they have a, a, a ruling council, basically. He calls together this council of generals and scientists in charge of the R-7 to make his big pitch. The council meeting. Let's, let's go over what Korolev has at this point. He has one booster left in stock. He has a heat shield that doesn't work, and he has an unfinished scientific satellite. After the last test flight, Korolev uh, was called before the Council of Elders in charge of the R-7 to explain the situation. The military pushed him to focus on the heat shield because without it, the R-7 was completely useless as a weapon. It could fly perfectly, but, you know, the warheads burned up. The scientists, meanwhile, wanted more time to work on Object D before launching. And this is where Korolev made a suggestion that pisses off everyone. Even his own people? His his own people were mostly on board. They just didn't think it would work. They didn't think okay. he'd be able to get approval or be able to lie his way out of this one. Um, he told the council that he intended to use the last R7 booster to launch a simple satellite, neglecting both the heat shield issues and Object D in his race to uh, reach orbit before Von Braun. He argued that it was time to launch a satellite and score a win for the Soviet Union, since if they delayed, the project might be cancelled and all their work wasted. The council did not like this. The generals, who still had operative control over the R-7, shut down any use of the last boosters for a satellite. 
scientists argued that Korolev's simple satellite was nothing more than a propaganda play. Spoiler alert, they were right. Uh, I'm probably going to get this name wrong, but uh, Metislav Keldish, one of the leading scientists opposed to Korolev's plan, denies him access to the USSR's only supercomputer, basically shutting down any way of plotting the rocket's course. So his proposal is dead in the water in less than a minute. But he's persistent. He, he comes back, he came back a few weeks later, and made basically the same argument again with about the same reaction. When the generals and scientists shut him down, he has an idea. He argues that they should let the Presidium decide. They should let the government do it. And this does not seem like a good idea at the time. After months of delays and failure, many Soviet leaders hated the R-7 and wanted to see it cancelled. And you'd think that might be the end of it, but then something wonderful happens. A little something called a coup d'etat. The world's worst coup. That's right. We're getting back into the politics. Oh, this is... The politics? The politics the of the ball. Yes. It's, it's, the, it's the most wonderful thing. This, like, this beepy ball is drenched in politics and blood. And I, this is going to be like a bit of an aside, but you cannot... I don't think you can talk about the history of Sputnik without going into the political side and uh, this this story that I'm about to tell you. So remember how I told you in the first episode that Khrushchev really needed a win in early 1956? He needs a win more than ever now. Things like did not get better. Are you saying things have not necessarily developed in Khrushchev's favor? Like you, you also have to remember he doesn't have. This is like mid nineteen fifty seven. He doesn't yet have his win. Korolev is still working on his win, and like the situation that he was in, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Like with Georgia a year prior, a dictator slightly scaling back the amount of dictatorship led to a lot of angry people suddenly able to express their feelings, like. Which led say, to a lot of bullets being expressed into yeah. said people. And and say what you will about Khrushchev, I he I think he just didn't get that you can't really. Do, I don't think you can do a halfway dictatorship. Like I'm no expert, but I'm always willing to throw my opinions around. And if you have like an eighty percent dictatorship, people are just going to use that twenty percent of freedom to complain about the eighty percent. I think you like if you're going to have tyranny, I think you aim for a solid, like 40% of tyranny in your dictatorship. Uh, and he's trying, so, he's trying to thread that needle right now. But either way, the man is trying to play the balance as finely as he can. Yeah. He's trying to stay alive or, or keep the, like, as we're going to see, the main thing is keeping his little NATO wannabe uh, together. So, in late 1956, the Polish city of Poznan was the, the site of several large workers' protests over poor working conditions. The Polish government, responding as many Warsaw Pact nations did in those days, sent in the army who promptly started firing on the crowd, killing up to 100 civilians. You know, all this is, this is what they do. So the, the protests were put down, but, but the Polish government could clearly see that their people were dissatisfied with the old hardliners, and being an effective, you know, puppet state of the Soviet Union. In October, uh, Vladislav Gomulka, I'm probably getting that name wrong again, a reformer took the reins of the Polish Communist Party and started the process of liberalizing the country and moving it out of the Soviet orbit. The Soviets, needless to say, viewed this as a threat and moved troops to the Polish border in what was planned as a quick takeover and return of the hardliners to power. 
it was only Khrushchev and Gomulka having a hasty conference that prevented any more bloodshed. Polish government would be allowed uh, a bit more independence if it promised to stay in the Warsaw Pact and stay communist. Oh, what's it called? I kind of remember something about this. Um, I had a teacher that was, he was Polish and he was there during the, uh, I, I don't know whether to call it an uprising, revolt, something like that. It's it, one of the like things was... that commonly one of the things that commonly happened was they would weld the tr- weld the wheels of trains to their tracks. Really, like as a way yeah. of locking them down, like as a, a oh yeah, as, as a way of stopping them from moving. Like just okay, this shipment of food is going to the Soviet Union. Let's tack yeah. weld these wheels to the tracks. And you have to remember, for all powerful that trains are, they only have the contact package of like a f- couple quarters. And they weren't able to move the cars, so you just had full rail cars just full of produce just going completely oh, rancid and decaying at the stations. And and like it's kind of worth mentioning like you, you said you said like revolution there. This is like there are the initial protests in Poznan, but overall, like this revolution in Poland happens mostly in the government and pretty peacefully. Like whenever you look at it. All it is, like, Poland stays in the Warsaw Pact, it stays communist, it's it's just that the old Stalinist, uh, like, hardliners are would kicked be a better out. word for it. Yeah, it's, it's like an overturning of the old order, and they're replaced with a bunch of, uh, like, the party still remains the central authority, it's just that now the party is led by a dude who wants to liberalize the country heavily. When, a few weeks later, spurred on by American promises of assistance, Hungary erupted into revolution, Khrushchev considered all of his goodwill spent. Uh, The pattern was mostly the same. A small protest was put down with gunfire, leading to a widespread revolution against the hardline communist government and the rise of a moderate communist leader, in this case a man by the name of Imre Nagy. As Soviet troops drew up on the border, uh, Nagy and his government worked to de-Stalinize Hungary, breaking up the secret police, allowing non-communist parties, and critically, formally pulling Hungary out of the Warsaw Pact and declaring themselves a neutral country. This time, there would be no diplomatic meeting. The Red Army stormed across the border and encircled Budapest, engaging Hungarian soldiers, revolutionaries, and civilians alike. The old government was restored, Nagy was executed, and the death toll reached 3,000. Shit. Yeah, the the story gets, uh, it takes a turn. I'm, I actually work with a bunch of uh, what's called people from Eastern Europe, and some of them are pretty old, and they might have you know some family members, like a parent that lived through that. There's, I I don't have uh, the exact numbers, but there is a large amount of uh, ref, like at this time, uh, massive like millions of people flee Hungary uh, during this revolution. To the geriatric Stalinists still holding on in Khrushchev's Kremlin. None of this was an issue. What was an issue was that Khrushchev's de-Stalinization efforts had embarrassed the Soviet Union. They've got their priorities straight. So they start planning to overthrow him in uh, 1957, but would only act on it in June, when Khrushchev made his famous We Will Bury You threat to the world. Have you guys, uh, have you guys ever heard of that? Oh, uh, I do. I have heard of this, and I remember it for the sole fact that it was largely a mistranslation yes that got the world going absolutely apeshit because it was not we're going to kill you it's we're going to be here when you pass we will succeed you it it wasn't that tone 
it wasn't even that. That's a con that's another common mistranslation of it. It's it's even better. It you know, it is amazing. He'd been talking about grain production. He was saying he was in that speech, he was talking about how the Soviet Union would overtake the US farms and bury them under piles of grain. Oh. But but whenever they translated it, the world it, like they interpret his his words as threats of nuclear war, and America responds with uh, increased spy plane and bomber flights over the Soviet airspace. So like to the, to the leaders, this is like, you know, Khrushchev is bumbling around. He's uh, sparked a couple of revolutions and now he's like idly threatening nuclear annihilation. I love the idea that he does his, we will bury you speech <laughs> and, and, and the U S replies by increasing, you know, spy plane sorties over the Soviet union and the things that they find are, man, there's a lot more wheat fields than there used to be. Yeah, it's like, and they're they're flying. What are they doing with all this? And they have to they have to be noticing as well. Like they're flying over the Soviet Union. It's like, wow, that is a lot of scrapped ships sitting at anchor. Like, what? Well, like, look at all of these tanks that they're throwing out. Let's say uh, there's also a oh, what was it the RLC slowly drying up? Just what are they doing with all that water? <laughs> Yeah, and Khrushchev, like he he t gives to him, he gives a great speech about like, oh, we're we're so totally gonna make so much wheat, and then a day later he starts getting like, uh, America has gone to DefCon One. What did you do? What did you do, you fucking imbecile? <laughs> so, so yeah, this that right there, the we will bury you. Uh, that was the final straw for the plotters, and they call Khrushchev to a meeting. Uh, just a normal, a normal meeting that uh, the government will have. Whenever he gets there, they lock the doors behind him and they start shouting charges at him and they vote him out of his position as first secretary. But crucially, they didn't jail or kill him. They like the, that that time that Stalinist time had passed. They just left him under house arrest and they actually left him with an active phone line. So. Long story short, Khrushchev was able to contact Z General Zhukov to rally all of the members of the Supreme Soviet, basically the Soviet Congress, to outvote the plotters. The KGB was pressed into action, tracking down representatives, and new Soviet bombers were pressed into service as makeshift airliners, ferrying them back to Moscow. Uh, in a parade headed up by Zhukov and loyalist generals, the members of the Supreme Soviet met, marched on Red Square and demanded the Presidium reinstate Khrushchev as first secretary and step down, which they had no choice but to do. Um, now, you might think that this being Russia in the 50s, that all of these men would soon find themselves disappeared or sent to gulags. But you're forgetting that Khrushchev, the butcher of Budapest, is a reformer and a very nice guy. Uh, none of the coup plotters are really punished, though they are exiled to various irrelevant posts around Russia. Georgi Malenkov, who was you know, briefly the ruler of uh, the Soviet Union a few years earlier, was sent to Kazakhstan to be the manager of a new hydro plant. Huh. Yeah. It, it it's it's awesome that Khrushchev like even whenever he's putting down the coup he kind of I I don't like these the guys are sentinel these... butcher of Budapest uh, no that was intentional Khrushchev Khrushchev I, rolled the... the incident in the first place yeah uh but like he kind of proves them right and I'm not saying that they would be better because these are guys who like these are the guys who were signing all of Stalin's lists 
Uh, Khrushchev was also, by the way, signing every one of those lists. Um, but like whenever he's in charge of Russia, he goes from like being the the big uh, liberalization guy. He's the reformer. He's the, the guy who's going to improve Russia's standard of living. And then when hung, like when Poland wants a little bit more freedom, he gives it to them. When Hungary does it, he flattens them with new tanks. Um, huh. Yeah, he he goes he kind of goes all over the place. Um, so let's take stock, because before the coup, Nikita Khrushchev was he was the first among equals of the backstabbing and violent men in charge of Russia. He had power, but not total power. And every move he made was judged by rivals who were like just waiting for the moment to strike. After the coup, he became the unquestioned sole ruler of the Soviet Union. He fills up the government with a bunch of yes men, and he is he is it. Korolev gets the green light. So whenever this is this is where like remember I, I said the politics was gonna be a bit of an aside. This is where we tie it back in. So Korolev he goes back to the council uh, the second time and he tells them, let's let the Presidium decide. Whenever he did that, he knew that there was no Presidium. It's just Khrushchev. There is no more. There's no more voting on anything. And Khrushchev likes the idea of the satellite. No one else on this council, none of the generals, none of the scientists, they don't want to go against Khrushchev. So he basically, Korolev forces their hand and he For forces sure. them to agree to launch his his tiny shitty little satellite uh, he which just will told become... them dad likes it ask yeah. dad better better yet he tells them like let's ask the whole family and only dad is in the room perfect yeah so he he forces their hand and all of them meekly agree to go along with his plan to launch a simple satellite uh sputnik one and that is where we are going to leave it for today. But you, listener or viewer on YouTube, can tune into part three, where we'll be talking about the launch of the world's first satellite and how the world the collectively ball. freaked out in what became known as the Sputnik crisis. The big ball. Yes. The OG the ball. ball. The original. The ball that was as much Khrushchev's ball as it was Korolev's ball. Thank you for listening to Failure to Launch. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review or tell a friend. Everything helps. If you want to follow us, contact us, or suggest a topic, you can email us at launchfailurepodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at launch underscore failure. Failure to Launch is hosted on Anchor, and we post on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. We also post our episodes with visual aids on YouTube at Failure to Launch. All music was provided by DJ Danarchy.